Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, uh, unless you want to. My name is Kate. And I forgot that I was going to talk. And my <laughs> name is Molly. And today Kate is telling me about Prince Harry's book. What is the name of oh, it? Molly. Molly, Molly, Molly. <laughs> this <laughs> book is called Spare. Spare, uh, that's it. I have to tell you why at this point, because he describes that his family would refer to his older brother, Prince William, as the heir and him as the spare. Oh, my God. Allegedly. (laughs) I do do have to say allegedly. I don't know how much (laughs) of that is actually true. The face I just made was like Kate told me the best gossip I'd ever heard. Um, I feel like if that's true, what a like breeding ground for victimhood. Oh, and like sibling rivalry and like just general shittiness towards one another. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. We've got a lot going on in this book. I thought about making this a two part episode and then I was like, do we really want to talk nobody, about this? Nobody can listen. <laughs> I'm like, does anyone want to listen to two hours of this? Oh my God. So- <laughs> well, I, for one, am riveted. <laughs> Already. So we will try to get through as much as possible. There are some fun things that I want to talk about. There are some uh, irritating things that I want to talk about. And then there are some things that I think are kind of missed opportunities. So I will start with a very, very brief summary and give you an idea of what this book is about. So Spare is Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. I'm not going to call him that just for the record, but that is his title. <laughs> call him that old. <laughs> the Duke of Sussex. Sussex. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Actually, that was a Freudian slip, and it worked really well. The Duke of Sussex. <laughs> well, I was about to say like that he was referring to his Todger, so it really, oh, truly was. I'm already, I'm already <laughs> nauseous. Dry heaving. <laughs> Um, so Spare is his tele-memoir, which was published at the beginning of this year in January 2023. Uh, it was ghostwritten by J.R. Uh, Moeringer. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm saying that name incorrectly. And for some truly inexplicable and wholly unnecessary reason, it is 415 pages long. No! Yes. Okay. I, I wish the listeners could see me shaking my head. This is my biggest regret is that I read this entire book. Uh, <laughs> cover to cover. Oh, anyway, um, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, a former actress born and raised in Los Angeles, stepped down from their royal duties in early 2020. So a big part of the book is kind of covering that and the uh, aftermath. But the way that I want to tell you about this book is through three themes. I'm doing alliteration. Okay. So structure of the book. The I'm going to talk about struggles. So things Ooh, that I feel like okay. actually humanized uh, Prince Harry and the royal family. And then the final okay. section is just size. Um, <laughs> because mm. that is me being like... <sighs> Yes. Okay. Um, and then wait. in between, I there's some funny ex- 
excerpts that I just couldn't not talk about. So keeping with the alliteration, okay. those are our snort breaks. So <laughs> snort breaks. Yes. <laughs> okay. I can't wait. Um, okay. So this book is broken into three parts of Prince Harry's life. The beginning is his childhood after his mom died at age 12 until the age of about 21 when he joined the military. Okay. Uh, section two is his life and career in the military and just a little bit on his post-military role as a full-time royal, Ugh. whatever that even is. Gross. And then section three details his life after he met and fell in love with Meghan Markle. Okay. And the falling out from leaving his mm -hmm. royal family. His full-time royalness. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Molly. Let's I get have into to read it. You, let's get into it. <laughs> I have to read you this section from the very first chapter of the book. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Just to give you an idea of how this book is written. Mm-hmm. So the very first chapter, he recounts a story after his grandfather's funeral okay. where he, his father Charles, and Prince William get into an argument about Prince Harry's leaving the royal family. Okay. And they're like in this, you know, room, just the three of them, they're arguing, and <laughs> they are yelling at each other. And this is the conversation. So... This is him writing. He said, uh, do they not know why I left the royal family? And he looks up at the trees. You don't know. Harold, I honestly don't, said Willie. He calls his brother Willie, which... Ew, so why is there so, so much dick stuff in this? <laughs> Regrettably, I don't know. <laughs> I turned to Pa. He was gazing at me with an expression that said, neither do I. Wow, I thought, maybe they really don't staggering but maybe it was true and if they didn't know why i'd left maybe they just didn't know me at all and maybe they never really did and to be fair maybe i didn't either the thought made me feel colder and terribly alone but it also fired me up i thought i have to tell them how can i tell them i can't it would take too long besides they're clearly not in the right frame of mind to listen not now anyway not today and so paul willie World, here you go. No, Kate, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Kate, Kate is holding an imaginary gun to her head. <laughs> I truly just read that and I was like, oh, so that's the kind of book this is going to be? This is Great. so bad. I want to take a moment of silence for the ghostwriter. <laughs> okay, that's kind of like... Part of the issue, though, is I think the ghostwriter was bad. Was purpose, yeah, was bad and purposely sensationalizing it because I mean, sure. it is a tell-all. Yeah, but geez, it's this written is like so a soap much. opera, though. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh wow, it's like the Lifetime movie of books. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I just needed to establish that, like, that's the tone. This is that what we're working, working with, with here. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and. It's also so disingenuous for him to start the book out establishing that he's writing this book for his brother and dad to understand his decisions, which he's really clearly writing it to make money. Yeah. So also, like, why would you even claim that? I know that's not true. Can you imagine how much Prince William and Kate, whom I'm, I assume hate each other, but they probably laughed their asses off reading this book. <laughs> oh, like, I this is probably the hardest they have laughed in years. 
I it was the hardest I've laughed in years. <laughs> I can tell you that. And, and I, I don't even know these people. <laughs> oh my god, this is amazing. I can't uh, wait. Okay. okay. So there's also um a moment in the first couple of chapters uh where he talks about how he doesn't have a very good memory after his mother has died. Okay. Because he starts to sort of repress some things and uh, he is just like having, he basically he says that like his grief over losing his mother has caused memory issues for a really long time. He establishes that, but then it also means that the first part of the book is really disjointed hmm. and it kind of reads like, these little vignettes of him responding to prompts that the ghostwriter clearly asked him. Interesting. So, like, what was the worst part of your experience at boarding school? What was the best part of your experience okay. at boarding school? <laughs> and Ooh. it's just so much uh, disjointedness. Like, yeah. you're reading it and you're just like, there's no narrative here, really. It's just a series of stories that are not particularly interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the first, like, a hundred and some pages of the book. Wow. Um, really impressive that you continued on. <laughs> is it impressive or is it just a bad decision? <laughs> <laughs> Should I be applauded or taken away? <laughs> he does uh, reveal, though, that um, he thought about uh, going to university because he considered a course in art history because a lot of pretty girls took that subject. <sighs> um hence us so yeah, i i do yeah. have to give him credit for recognizing that art history girls are pretty that is true um <laughs> seems a little shallow of him yeah you know yeah, for like sure. go for the art and come and stay for the women i guess <laughs> but go to the, go for the art <laughs> stay for the beauty <laughs> that's what we always say uh, well um, real recognizes real okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so in the first chapters again he's like talking about how his memory is sort of like disjointed it's Um, so funny to talk about having a bad memory in your memoir literally that's exactly what i was about to bring up oh god um so he call he makes it a point to call out that his memory is inaccurate which is so weird because when you're reading a memoir you're aware that there are likely other versions of the stories that they chose to tell. Right. And so it seems to a certain extent not worth pointing out unless he's trying to hedge that his memory is less accurate than other people's, in which Mm. case I don't know that I can believe anything in this book, which is also a weird precedent to set up for your readers. Yes. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the unreliable narrative stuff we talked about with Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. But in that instance he wasn't actively being like yeah clearly in the future all of this went to shit so what do i know you know like right right he isn't already setting up the fact that he's unreliable (laughs) right in the book that's weird so this is a quote he writes whatever the cause my memory is my memory it just does what it does gathers and curates as it sees fit and there's just as much truth in what i remember and how i remember it as there is in so-called objective facts oh my god kate so i don't really know what to do with that as a reader like i don't know how to use that in a positive way here's what i'll say (laughs) 
I do think there is accuracy to the statement that whether it actually happened that way or not, if you experienced it that way, like if you thought someone was yelling at you, even if they weren't, and you experienced Mm -hmm. it that way, it affects you. Yeah. But, and that is legitimate. You were affected by it. But that is not the same thing as it happening. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the distinction he's trying to make, but it's very clumsily done. And it implies that his perception of reality is the same thing as reality, which is not actually true. Yeah. And it also gives no room for exactly what you're talking about from anyone else's perspective, Mm -hmm. because other people also have their perception of reality. Right. And if you're saying that yours your perception of reality is reality, then that means other people's perception of reality cannot be reality. And it's just sort of, it just gets so tricky because it's like, well, that can't be true for you, but not true for others. Yeah. It's like that cultural phenomenon that's happened in the last like five years of like my truth thing. Yeah. Which is like, again, I see the legitimacy in that your experience is valid and affects you, but Mm -hmm. I don't love when people refer to it as their truth because it's like that implies that someone else's is less legitimate or could not your perception shouldn't be challenged in any way, even though it like clearly should at times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So we're starting off really strong. So I just had to like get some of that stuff (laughs) out of the way to just ground you in Mm -hmm. this book and how it is. I want to, there are a couple of things that I want to say about the ghostwriting. The writing in this book, as I mentioned, is at times sensationalized, which is irritating because he spends about 80% of the book complaining about the press and how they sensationalize things. And it's like, okay, you certainly had a choice over who is going to be your ghostwriter. And Mm -hmm. if you didn't want it to feel sensationalized, you probably should have chosen a different writer. And that was within your decision-making power. Mm -hmm. So here's a quote that's an example, and it's talking about the air in this fair. Oh, God. So he's in a castle because his family owns multiple castles. Hard to claim victimhood when you're in a castle, but keep going. Balmoral, which is a castle that they own, one of the many, had 50 bedrooms. Uh, and then later he says uh, that him and William are sharing a room. Okay, whatever. Weird. Why? My half of the room, <laughs> literally, why? Uh, my half of the room was far smaller. I didn't care why, but I also didn't need to ask why. Two years older than me, Willie was the heir, whereas I was the spare. This wasn't just how the press referred to us. This was shorthand often used by Pa and Mummy and Grandpa. Oh my God. He is writing like a 14 year old. Yes. Willie, Willie had the bigger half of the room. <laughs> in our castle? And, <laughs> like, and I was happy with what I had, these scraps in the corner. Like, literally, too. and it's like, dude, I, you can't possibly put this in the book without understanding how this would come off, that you would be complaining about living in a castle. Yes, also. You're complaining about living in a castle. I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> And let's just put this out there. If your castle has 50 bedrooms, imagine how many other rooms it also has to have. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It 
it's not that every room in the castle is a bedroom. <laughs> it's that there are many, many, many rooms, and 50 of them are bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you still found time to complain about that. Why were they sharing a room? That's so crazy. Literally, who knows? Who anyway, knows? this is amazing. Keep going. So there is, again, this very disjointed first section of the book. There's a distance, I think, between Prince Harry's voice and the author's that feels significant. And it really, like, takes you out of it. Or that's how I felt. Mm -hmm. I do feel like this improves as the book goes on. But it's a really rough 100 pages to start off with. Uh, Okay. So we've now made it to our first snort break. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Uh, In the first section of the book, he describes a scene where a bodyguard, because you know, they're, they always have bodyguards with them where a bodyguard takes him aside when he's a teenager to ask, to ask him if he's been doing drugs because there's like a rumor that he's been doing drugs. But what he thinks he's getting in trouble for is so much weirder. <laughs> the bodyguard says, is there something you need to tell me? And this is his response. I suspected he was referring to my recent loss of virginity in glorious episode with an older woman. She liked horses quite a lot and treated me not unlike a young stallion quick ride after which she'd smacked my rump and sent me off to graze among the many things about it that were wrong. It happened in a grassy field behind a busy pub. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, that he put that piece of information in this book because he wanted it to be picked up by the press and cause more, like, talk about this book. There is no world in which I believe that he put this in this book without wanting people to, like, yeah, lose like, their like heads this was an it. important part of the story. <laughs> this is literally irrelevant. This is irrelevant. Again, oh the, the story isn't even about him losing his virginity. He just added this information it's about a woman engaging in bestiality (laughs) (laughs) it's literally about a furry (laughs) oh my god this is crazy it's also funny because i feel like in england a busy pub is the equivalent of like a wendy's in the states (laughs) he lost it behind a 7-eleven with those like rotating hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll move on. We'll move on. So, Amazing. all right. So that's just I, a little bit on the structure of this book. I want to move on and talk about some of the things that I felt like were actual struggles that his family, okay. like between him and his family, and also between his family and the press. Okay. That are they and I've kind of structured this so that they escalate. So okay. there are a couple of passages where he's talking about the lack of humanity and how people don't really treat them like they are human beings Mm -hmm. because they're this like larger than life figures. Uh, He talks about how the press did not rush to help princess Diana after her car accident. Mm. Um, His quote was not one of them was checking on her, offering her help, not even comforting her. And this is, they're just taking photos of the car accident afterwards, which is just like a terrible uh, inhumane thing to be doing. He also describes that in the wake of her death, uh, he remembers, like, feeling as if he had to console the public. Mm. So he writes, I re- and he's 12 at this point. Yeah. Uh, I remember consoling several folks who were prostrate, overcome, as if they knew mommy, but only, but also thinking, you didn't, though. You act as if you did, but you didn't know her at all. 
And I think that there must be so much trauma behind having a parent die Mm -hmm. and then having to turn around and comfort the public who did not know her at all. Yeah. And that also, like, in, in some ways caused her death. Yeah. Yeah. And just, like, how deeply sad that is, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's also, like, a clear lack of human connection within the family. Mm-hmm. So he talks repeatedly of his family's lack of physical and emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how, like, they never hugged. There was no physical contact. Uh, it It's very sad when he comes back from the military, his first... Uh, tour he comes back and he gets a hug from prince william Mm -hmm. and like i don't know a handshake or a pat on the back from his dad or or something like that and he writes it would have appeared to anyone at a distance a normal family greeting and interaction but for us it was a flamboyant unprecedented demonstration of physical affection which is very sad to me yeah that is sad he talks about too that his dad just like clearly it does not have a lot of emotional capacity or mm-hmm. maturity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about his dad having trouble communicating, trouble listening, trouble being intimate face to face. Occasionally he'd, you know, they'd have dinner together and then he'd go upstairs and he'd find a letter that his dad had written telling him that he was proud of something he'd accomplished or, mm. you know, whatever. But he couldn't say that to him face to face. He also says that his dad has a teddy bear um, as like an emotionally secure object that went with him everywhere. Uh, he wrote, Teddy went everywhere with Pa. It was a pitiful object with broken arms and dangly threads, holes patched up here and there. Teddy expressed eloquently, better than Pa ever could, the essential loneliness of his childhood. Oh my god, that is so heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh. Really, really sad. Yeah, I... I know that the royals get, like, shit on a lot, and and for good reason. You know, there's not, like, the the British Empire did some very fucked up things, and yeah. some of those, the people in the royal family had some agency in that. But I also think that, like, the crippling trappings of royalty affect people on a level that we can't imagine and makes it much harder for them to be what we would consider good people. Yeah. Yeah. And also just like emotionally mature functioning uh, human beings. Like I I think that being born into that level of fame and that lack of privacy Mm -hmm. just must be such a completely different experience than most of us will ever understand Mm -hmm. that it is hard. You almost have to like grade on a curve of his like emotional availability. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't think that it's necessarily fair to expect that he could have those like moments of development in his childhood and adolescence that most of us were able to have. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed that there was a lot of, especially from like liberal sides of things there was a lot of um commentary around the queen's death that was like fuck the queen why is anyone mourning her and i just Mm -hmm. felt very like not good about that because although i see 
that perspective that like imperialism and um what's the word uh colonialism thank you yes colonization those things were done by the royal family but i think that queen elizabeth like actually had a hand in dismantling a lot of it and i i know that she wasn't perfect and she certainly like up up, upheld racism within her clan but Mm -hmm. i don't know i just felt like there was like maybe more nuance that was needed rather than just being like fuck the queen it was like i don't know (laughs) she was like a human being who probably did often her best with what she had and it just felt weird to not have any nuance around that yeah yeah i think that i i as a white person feel like i can't as as a white american especially i feel like i can't uh tell other people how they should have reacted to that Mm -hmm. because if i was from a country where Mm -hmm. obviously we were colonized by britain but like my ancestors were part of the colonizers so it's a bit different but if i were in a different position Mm -hmm. i think that I would probably feel the same as a lot of people of like, yeah, I don't care about her death at all. And she was a bad person and whatever. So I don't know. It is very tricky when you have both a human being Mm -hmm. and a symbol in one that those things are conflated and it's not easy to pull apart the threads of like, which are which, you know? Yeah, that's true. Which it does make sense to be more like, fuck the monarchy that I get. And you're right, like, you can't, sitting from our perspective, we can't say how someone from a different perspective should or shouldn't feel about it. Um, but I think that it is it is so much more complicated than we ever want it to be. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I think that's part of what is evident about uh, the monarchy, is that you start to look at it and you're like oh this is also stupid but Mm -hmm. the deeper you dig the more you realize it's just such a reflection of humanity and Mm -hmm. our world and the impact that britain has had on the world Mm -hmm. and so it does get a lot more complicated it's not easy there is no like you know everyone in here is definitely bad kind of mentality that's like i don't know it Mm -hmm. it also depends on how you define bad and good you know and so all of it is very tricky and complex, mm-hmm. for sure. I will say just a last on the family intimacy point mm-hmm. that his father and Camilla, who uh, Prince Charles, now King Charles, married after mm-hmm. uh, Diana's death, were constantly leaking stories to the press about him and William to make themselves look better because Charles and Camilla are very not charismatic and they're not really that well liked. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they would leak stories to make other people in the Royal family look worse and make themselves look better. So they would like instruct their PR office to do this, which I think is so disgusting. That's really bad. Yeah. To be like, a parent and not only be not protective of your children but to be straight up exploitative of them yeah especially like you're talking about young people who are like going to do like bad and embarrassing things from time to time and exploiting that because you're an adult who does bad and embarrassing things is just like yikes yeah pretty much uh so this brings us to a lack of privacy 
uh, and straight up lies. So we talked about this a little bit. Uh, I personally found it very humanizing to think about him growing up and his lack of privacy. Mm-hmm. For example, at 13 years old, somebody like gives him a buzz cut at his boarding school and the press ran photos of his bad haircut and had all of these like, you know, headlines about it. And who among us has not had a bad haircut Mm -hmm. at the age of 13? But none of us had, well, not none of us. I mean, there are other famous children who have had this treatment, but like we did not have that in headlines and in the newspaper and like how terrible that must have felt Mm -hmm. to be a 13 year old who's also already awkward already feeling weird and then have them comment on your looks or you know and misses your fucking mom like yeah ugh, that's awful yeah so little things like that um in the teen years they spread rumors that he went to rehab which he uh refutes in this book Mm. he also talks about how royal biographies posited that his real dad was not uh king charles but it was uh major hewitt and there were lies about his family interactions Mm. throughout the book occasionally he'd be like you know, in this biography, they reported that X, Y, Z happened. None of that actually happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of kind of refuting of narratives that have already been put out mm-hmm. by the press. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really hard, especially because you know that you can say that didn't happen as much as you want. And there are some people who will believe that it did. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Because once it's out there, you yeah. know, people remember those yes. things. Yeah. And it, like, impacts their biases and mm-hmm. and th- what they remember. Um, all of those, though, I would say are... I wouldn't say that they're harmless, mm-hmm. but um, they're just, like, sort of shitty yeah. things that he had to deal with. But there's also, like, a fair amount of actual danger that the press puts him in throughout mm-hmm. his life. Mm-hmm. And namely, when he was in the military, there were multiple times where the tour that he was going on and what battalion he was in was outed. And the Taliban, knowing where he was then, targeted those groups or explicitly said they would target him and try to kill him first. That's because he is a, a. symbol of the monarchy yeah he's a symbol of your country of course they would go after him and try to kill him but because the press had ran where he was going and what he was helping with like they were not only putting him at danger but everybody else in his group because they're all with him too if they bomb the like the place Mm. where they're all there Mm -hmm. all of those people could die as well god that's so fucked up yeah. So really, I think inexcusable coverage by the British press mm-hmm. in that regard, uh, because it's just like, frankly, life or death. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just what does that gain you? You know, like that isn't yeah. even like titillating gossip. Who gives a shit in, in yeah. Britain where he is? They're not going to go like see him. Right. You know, it's right. not like reporting that he's going to be at like the Tower Theater on Friday night and people are going to try to get a glimpse. Jesus Christ. Yeah. God. There's also this whole section that we all lived through, which is once he began dating Megan, there was 
just an onslaught of racism towards her that was absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. Just so much vitriol. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a section here where he describes, um, there was no real respite for Meg once she was inside her house. Like every previous night, paths and so-called journalists knocked at her door, rang the bell constantly. Her dogs were losing their minds. They couldn't understand what was happening, why she wasn't answering the door, why the house was under assault. As they howled and paced in circles, she cowered in the corner of her kitchen on the floor. Oh my god, that's so dark. Yeah. And then later in that section, he describes one neighbor reported being offered a fortune to mount on the roof, live streaming cameras aimed at Meg's windows. Another neighbor actually accepted the offer, hitched a camera to his roof, and pointed it straight at Meg's backyard. Again, she contacted the police, who again did nothing. Oh my god. And like that sort of thing is just so disgusting to me that like we're past the point of, you know, seeing these people as like larger than life and you're now looking at them like they're animals in a zoo, That's, you know. Yeah. Wow. And I, yeah, I just feel like there's been such an unreasonable amount of fuck Meghan Markle narratives mm-hmm. and it for what? You know? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. There's this deep-seated racism that I think is angry about the idea of a black woman having access to a white prince like Mm -hmm. that. Like, she wasn't the one who was supposed to. Like, oh, she wasn't the one who was supposed to have that horrible, horrible curse. (laughs) Get over yourself. (laughs) Literally. She wasn't the person who's supposed to have this godforsaken life yeah like (laughs) i don't mm, know i think you are misunderstanding what being a part of a royal family is all about yeah uh one last thing here which is i think very tragic and devastating is that uh right after the birth of their son their first son archie Mm -hmm. uh she got pregnant again and megan actually had a what I would term like a late term miscarriage because mm-hmm. of all of the stress of everything that was going on. Um, and they had to, you know, bury the fetus mm-hmm. and go through that terrible grieving period and loss, which I just think is so tragic Ugh. and so deeply sad that something that doesn't matter, like the press being, figuring out what you're doing and where mm-hmm. you are at all times can cause the amount of stress to tragically impact something that does matter, like bringing a child into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no justice for that. No, not at all. Uh, okay. So that I were some like humanizing sections mm-hmm. that I just really wanted to cover because I feel like it's important to balance out how much I'm going to laugh at this next section. <laughs> Um, Fair. So, snort break number two. <laughs> All right. I want to emphasize that this book is not a funny book. Mm, it, okay. It's just not. Like, he's not funny. The ghostwriter does not put a lot of jokes in here. Mm. Um, it doesn't have, like, quips or funny anecdotes throughout, uh, which is what makes the next thing that I'm going to share so outrageous. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't wait. So, Prince William is getting married, and Prince Harry describes that the in the days leading up to the wedding... He took the opportunity to hike the North Pole with the Wounded Warriors Veteran Group, okay. which is a group of veterans disabled by combat who are hiking the North Pole. Okay. So he sees this as like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, mm-hmm. and so he goes. 
But then when he comes back for the wedding, he writes, Upon arriving home, I'd been horrified to discover that my nether regions were frost-nipped as well, and while the ears and cheeks were already healing, the todger wasn't. Then later he writes, Like, what was the universe out to prove by taking my penis at the same moment that it took my brother, meaning his brother is getting married? And I was just what like, the fuck is wrong dude. with him? <laughs> he talks, he, do, he does it like four or five times during that section of the story is like references like his frostbitten dick. And I'm like, okay, this is so jarring compared to the seriousness with which you treat all the other stories in this book that I'm not even understanding like what is going on here. Yuck, yuck, yuck. My dick is frozen. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Sir. Sir, please. This is your brother's okay. wedding. Okay. <laughs> I, I also just don't understand that kind of language that people use about a marriage being something that takes someone away from you. Like, yeah. Yes, you're right. They're going to prison for life. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Like, he talks about, like, after his dad got married, he saw less of him. And, like, he expected it to be the same for his brother. Mm. But it's like, yeah, but, like, that's a choice. Yeah. Like, they don't, they don't have to do that. You guys could have seen each other more and been more a part of each other's lives, but you chose not to. Right, right. And given how hard it was for you to extract yourselves from the family, it seems like you're, you probably were seeing enough of each other. I don't know. It just seems like... It's not like you could get away from them easily, so weird. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so Hilarious. now we're to our final section, which is just size. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk first about um, something that I think was like good, and I would have actually liked more of it. Okay. Um, which I view as like a missed opportunity. Okay. Uh, so he talks a little bit about... Um, there are two sections in this that I'll bring up, but the first is that he talks about going to therapy hmm. okay. and um, he talked about how he got into a fight with Megan. He spoke to her disrespectfully. He doesn't really go into exactly like what he says or how he says it. Uh, and she told him like, I won't be stood for talking to that way like Mm -hmm. you're going to respect me i'm not gonna bring children into a world with or a family with a man who doesn't respect women whatever Mm -hmm. so you need to go to therapy and like work Work your shit out out. nice and it's like okay that's very reasonable i think as a partner to say so um he talks about how he goes to therapy and at first it was just so difficult for him to access any of his memories about his mom as he's sort of working through mm-hmm. the grief because mm-hmm. he's repressed so much of it. Yeah. And uh he even talks about how at one point when he was getting out at the funeral, he remembers asking someone else how they were holding up as a 12-year-old at his mother's funeral. Oh. He talks at length about how he, like, didn't really believe that she was dead. He thought that maybe she had, like, run away or disappeared Mm. in some way. Um, And so there's this um, part where he's in therapy. And uh, here is the section that I'd like to read from that. Mm -hmm. All my life, I told people I couldn't remember the past, couldn't remember my mom, but I never gave anyone the full picture. My memory was dead. 
Now, through months of therapy, my memory twitched, kicked, and sputtered. It came to life. Some days, I'd open my eyes to find mummy standing before me. A thousand images returned, some so bright and vivid that they were like holograms. I remembered mornings in mommy's apartment at Kensington Palace, the nanny waking Willie and me, helping us down to mommy's bedroom. I remember that she had a waterbed, and Willie and I would jump up and down on the mattress, screaming, laughing, our hair standing straight up. I remembered the breakfast together, mommy loving grapefruit and lynchies, I don't know what that is, uh, seldom drinking coffee or tea. I remember that after breakfast, we'd embark on the working day with her, sitting by her side during the first phone calls, auditing her business meetings. I remembered Willie and me joining her for a chat with Christy Turlington, Claudia Schiffner, and Cindy Crawford. Very confusing, especially for two shy boys or at or about the age of puberty. Uh, she talks about remembering bedtimes with her um, and... Uh, the therapist actually instructed him to bring in a vial of her perfume that she would always wear to mm. sort of like spark the memories. Um, so a, a little bit further down in this section, he says, I remembered one day at Ludgrove, mommy stuffing sweets into my sock. Outside sweets for, were forbidden, so mommy was flouting school rules, <laughs> giggling as she did so, which made me love her even more. And so he kind of goes through like all of these very tender and very real moments with his mother mm -hmm. that you don't, this is like page 216 of the book. Mm. This is the first time where he really talks about any um, like meaningful moments mm -hmm. with anyone other than Megan mm. um, and that like connection and the love that is between them. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of would have liked to have hear him talk about, more of those moments with other people um he just doesn't really go into it all that much whether it's with like friends or you know others mm -hmm. it just seems like it was lacking for most of the book and I so enjoyed this section I just wish there were more of it yeah well especially having it be about Diana which is just such a the things that we know about her are so warped by the phenomenon that she was mm -hmm. to hear this like very intimate secret memory that is like preserved in someone's mind who actually knew her mm -hmm. feels like a real glimpse into that life and who she was that yeah. is interesting. Yeah. And, and it, again, is very like humanizing of her, right? Of, like yeah. She was a real person and, um, you know, she broke the rules, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, it was something that was very endearing when it came to thinking about, like, her relationship with her son. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just really enjoyed sections of the book where he actually does that. Um, there's another section of the book that I would love to just hear what you think about. Um, because it's about his time in the military. Okay. And he flat out comes out and says how many people he has killed when he was in the army. Ooh. But I want to, and that was what like made the headlines is like Prince Harry tells people how many people he killed. But the way that he contextualizes this, I want to read it to you because okay. I feel like it sort of changed my opinion of the headlines. Okay. And I want to hear what you think of this. 
So most soldiers can't tell you precisely how, uh, how much death is on their ledger. In battle conditions, there's often a great deal of indiscriminate firing. But in the age of Apaches and laptops, uh, I should pause here to say that he was a helicopter pilot. Um, so he was like specifically targeting people. Um, everything I did in the course of two combat tours was recorded, tied and stamped. I could always say precisely how many enemy combatants I'd killed, and I felt it vital never to shy away from that number. Among the many things I learned in the army, accountability was near the top of the list. So my number, 25. It wasn't a number that gave me any satisfaction, but neither was it a number that made me feel ashamed. Naturally, I'd have preferred not to have that number on my military CV, on my mind, but by the same token, I'd have preferred to live in a world where there was no Taliban, a world without war. Even for an occasional practitioner of magical thinking like me, however, some realities just can't be changed. While in the heat and fog of combat, I didn't think of those 25 as people. You can't kill people if you think of them as people. You can't really harm people if you think of them as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board, bads taken away before they could kill goods. I'd been trained to otherize them, trained well. On some level, I recognized this learned detachment as problematic, but I also saw it as an unavoidable part of soldiering, another reality that can't be changed. I think it's very interesting how he describes that and doesn't necessarily draw the parallel between how people treated his family, but you can, because they, like the press and many people in the world, do not think of the royal family as people. And if they did, they wouldn't be able to treat them the way they have. And, you know, you can make the argument that the royal family has committed atrocities so we can treat them however we want, blah, blah, blah. Yes, sure. Knock yourself out. <laughs> but the point <laughs> remains that there's like a very strong parallel to draw between the way he created these mental barriers and the way other people did around the royal family. Mm -hmm. like yeah. writing a story about a 13 year old whose mom just died getting a bad haircut like truly go fuck yourself <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think it's interesting because when i had first heard that my response was like gross that feels very callous to reveal how many people you've killed as if it's something to be proud of mm -hmm. but i do appreciate that he's not shying away from the accountability of that mm -hmm. um i don't agree with this section <laughs> i don't agree that like if you think world war shouldn't happen but then you go into the military it's like well there's obviously a disconnect between that belief and your actions um and he is not in the position where he had to go into the military like so many others right uh so I, I don't agree with him, but this is kind of like a a moment of self-reflection where it's clear he has thought about this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that he came to the conclusion that I, I would or that I would want him to, mm -hmm. but at least he did have some reflection on what this means. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I imagine that that's like a difficult thing to grapple with if you have killed people you would have to kind of come up with some way of being okay with that, I think. Especially mm -hmm. if it was in a situation like that where you're not going to be punished for those deaths, you know? Yeah. So yeah. you have to, like, kind of come to terms with it somehow. And I do think it's in some way 
strange to share details about that even Mm -hmm. if it is like somehow a military record but i think maybe what he's doing is trying to prove that he's not ashamed of what he did because it was done for like in his mind a noble purpose um Mm -hmm. i i have trouble with that just because people in the taliban may be doing bad things but they were radicalized to do those things and it's like a machine that has destroyed them just as they are destroying others so while i understand that maybe our only course of action that we have available is to like stop them before they cause more destruction it still just doesn't seem as simple to me as being like they were bad guys so we killed them <laughs> like yeah okay, yeah sure <laughs> for sure and like to your point he is talking here about he how he dehumanized them yes and doesn't make the connection that they dehumanized others as they were being radicalized right and that right. like the same forces that were acting on him in terms of being a part of this organization Mm -hmm. and dehumanizing others to do your job are the same forces that are acting on the Taliban in a lot of ways, but obviously to a different extent and in different ways. Yeah. And like, it doesn't address the history of colonialization, which dehumanized brown people in order to take all of their wealth and resources. Yeah. So it's like, well, now I have to dehumanize these brown people because they're bad. And it's like, well, that was the same story you've been telling for hundreds of years. And it's <laughs> a little weird and complicated for you to lean upon that as if, you know, there isn't this other history involved. Yeah. And I mean, I think like it's pretty clear he uh, views his work in the military as noble and courageous Mm -hmm. and right Mm -hmm. and i don't think that that like he he seems very clear that like no i was doing the good thing Mm -hmm. and there's no there's little to no and certainly not enough reflection on where you really yeah and how do you know for sure right and like i'm not even disputing that that was the right thing to do to kill the people that he killed. I obviously don't know a ton about right. what he was doing at that moment, but I also would have preferred for him to grapple with that a little bit more and reconcile. Like, how do I know that that was the right thing to do really? You know? And it's, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It would have been more interesting to me. Yes, definitely. And also like, I don't, I don't know. I just think that you can know the number and other people don't need to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely doesn't, like, have to reveal that. And, like, there's a lot in here about his outlook on the military that I'm just like, okay. Yeah, like, not (laughs) into. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's enough. (laughs) Yeah, I think, like, if as much as you might be going to therapy, it's going to take you many, many years to, like, make the progress that you would need for me to be like, okay with the way you talk about your military service. Yeah. Um, So I understand, I get why uh, he isn't successful in that at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, he talks about struggling from PTSD after he Mm. came back, and he talks about the lack of resources for veterans, all of which I found, like, very interesting and uh, worthwhile, like, writing about and sharing. Uh, He talks about, like, they were taken to a comedian's, a comedy show, um, as like a decompression period between the time that they left their tour and the time that they were headed back. And there were no mental health resources there. Like you got a comedy show and then there was a priest available to talk to if anyone wanted to. And he writes like, of course no one did. (laughs) And you know, it's, it's like just such a lack of understanding of, how to help people who have just gone through something so traumatic like war. Um, And I found that to be like really uh, powerful and noteworthy. Yeah. That is so fucked up to be like, Hey, you just killed some people. Why don't we go watch a comedy show? Here's Dane Cook. It's like, (laughs) um, here's Dane Cook, a man who dates 12 year olds. Isn't that hilarious? (laughs) I think that's not going to do it, sadly. Uh, (laughs) Oh my God. That's Um, so bad. So, okay. Uh, There's also like, uh, size again, a number of like things of just like, him not understanding racism um he very much looks at it from a like interpersonal interaction standpoint as opposed to thinking through like the structural implications of most things okay um he talks about two specific incidences where in one he dressed in a nazi costume uh for a birthday party um the theme was natives and colonials ew he talks about like but he did he did that at like age i don't know 18 or something and then he talks a little bit about like how he's ashamed of that he starts like an education and understanding he calls it not only a failure of education not just school education but Mm self-education he visited auschwitz and goes through the process of, like, learning more about the atrocities that happened there. Mm-hmm. So there's clearly, cool. like, him wanting to... Mm-hmm. He, he's expressing a, a desire to grow mm-hmm. and to change and to learn more, which I think is admirable. I don't know how much he really understands it, again, as, like, a structural prejudice mm-hmm. rather than, like, an individual one. Mm-hmm. He talks later about how he used a slur to describe a Pakistan um, or a person from Pakistan who was in his like platoon and he didn't know that it was a slur, but it was recorded. And then it went to the press and then people said he was racist. And then he, you know, goes through this whole thing of like, I was embarrassed. Okay. But did you think it was a nice thing to call someone? Like what are you talking about? (laughs) And then he said, yeah. So he says, they said, like, you can't go on the BBC and tell people you're not racist. That's not a good media strategy. And mm-hmm. he said, to hell with strategy. I don't care about strategy. I cared about people not thinking I was a racist. I cared about not being a racist. Above all, I cared about Ahmed, who was the guy that he had 
called a slur. I connected with him directly, apologized. He said he knew I wasn't a racist, no big deal. But it was, and his forgiveness, his easy grace, only made me feel worse. But there's no, like, recognition here that, like, yeah, Ahmed, like, said you weren't a racist or he doesn't believe you were being racist when you said that. And that's great, and I'm glad that you had that interpersonal conversation. But there's kind of not the second layer of, like, why is it not okay for me to say this to this person um, aside from just, like, hurt feelings? You know what I mean? Yeah. And and why did I not know that I shouldn't yeah. say that? Yeah, yeah. And like, why had why has no one taught me that? And it's probably because I've only been hanging out with a lot of white people, and mm-hmm. they themselves have not been taught anti racist education. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just like a lot of layers that I I'm not yeah. sure he's really like digging into. Yeah, there's the, the the whole piece of it where it's like we can believe that you weren't trying to be racist. But we can't really believe that you were trying not to be racist because you weren't. Yeah. And that's really what needs to happen. And it seems like there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's like present throughout. There's obviously Mm -hmm. like a clear lack of awareness of like his country being racist. Like when all of these racist headlines come out about him marrying into gangster royalty um because he's marrying Meghan Markle he writes like my face froze my blood stopped I was angry but more ashamed my mother country doing this to her to us really and it's like bro you're from Britain they did this to the whole world that's what colonialism is everyone in India is like what are you talking about is this the first time you're hearing of this Literally, and it's just, like, I, that, like, ignorance was irritating to me. Yeah. Because he does it, like, multiple times throughout the book. And it's, like, I'm sorry, at some point, like, you should, you should be retaining Mm -hmm. that, like, this is not the exception, this is the rule. Yeah. And what does that mean? Like, what, you know, so. I I saw an interview that he and Megan did with Oprah where, it's there's like a clip of it where Megan is kind of looking at him and he's looking at Oprah being like, yeah, they were racist to her. And she's just like, "Uh uh-huh. And it's like, you dummy, could you stop acting so surprised? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, okay. I feel like one of the first steps is like understanding that racism exists, even when you don't experience it, white people. And like, there's just a lack of that yes. like acknowledgement, which I feel like is like important. You yeah. have to have that to move forward in your like anti-racist journey. Yeah. So I think it, rem- yeah. it reminds me of how I felt when people acted really surprised about Roe v. Wade being yeah. overturned where shocked and devastated and all of that is also how I felt. But this has been the plan for so many goddamn years and they have, they had the numbers to do it. So the fact that people felt surprised just made me so angry because it was like, if you had maybe been paying more attention and not be so surprised right now, maybe we wouldn't fucking be here. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you had cared before the surprising event. Yeah. <laughs> it would have impacted the surprising event happening. Right. I don't know. Right. There's also a bit in addition to the ignorance about racism mm-hmm. about his just lack of general awareness of his privilege. Mm. Like 
50 room 50 bedroom castle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where it's like, okay, so they're being hounded by the press mm-hmm. from like 2018 until 2020. There are various times when they try to escape the press and like at one time he had knew a friend knew someone who knew someone who they could borrow a house on Vancouver Island free of charge. Wow. Um they escaped to Elton John's house in the south of France for okay. a little bit. And then they escaped to like this house in Los Angeles, which was owned by Tyler Perry. And like throughout all of these, he's very like grateful to the people who lent him the house, mm-hmm. but not necessarily like aware that when other people have problems, they don't just get like a free stay at a mansion, South which was very weird to me. I'm like, not everyone can stay for free at Elton John's house no. in the South of France. Like, you do get that, right? Do you get that? Yeah, I don't not, know. People can't even pay to stay there, actually. <laughs> yeah. People don't even get to know the address of that place, yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, and then he also talks about after he was cut off financially from the royal family mm. because they had set down, that they like had to scramble and find a place and they found a place, but it was priced at a steep discount just up the coast outside Santa Barbara. Okay. I'm like, bro, you're living in Santa Barbara. Do not give me a sob story about how you couldn't afford this house or whatever. We have nosebleed seats in Malibu. (laughs) Like, shut up. I hate you. (laughs) And I was like, okay, all right. I I think we're done with this. We really are done with this. Okay. So this brings me to the final section, which was by far the most, like, I was actually infuriated after I read this. Mm. Um, The rest of the stuff was, like, whatever, eye-rolly, irritating, whatever. Yes. But this is just kind of outrageous to me. So he's talking about how they're leaving the royal family, they're renouncing Mm -hmm. their titles, or not, they never actually did that, so I don't know. But anyway, they're leaving the royal family, they've made this decision, the family is upset, whatever. And they have this like summit where they talk with each of the people in the royal family who Mm -hmm. are like, this would impact. And the royal family comes up with like five options. One being um, that you stay in the royal family and everything stays the same and status quo. And five being that like you get cut off from the royal family and you renounce your titles and you go be a normal person. Normal in quotation marks. And and then, like, the in-between, it's, like, stages, like, in-between. Yeah, like, gradation. Yeah. Okay, got it. And it's, like, he really wanted to live his life fully alone, but also on someone else's dime. Like, it's very clear that he, like, didn't want to give up the money. He didn't want to give up the travel. He still wanted to, like, be a representation of the monarchy. But he also, like, wanted to have more privacy and wanted to not feel the pressures of it at which point i'm like okay you cannot have your cake and eat it too you have to make a choice you don't get to have all the things if you want to be a real person that does mean you have to make your own money yes also that's not even something that the royal family has control over they can't be like yes you can remain a representative and have this money and also the press will leave you alone like that's not something they can do (laughs) for you so right Also, like, let's be real, no matter how much you are or are not involved, I think the the press will never fully leave you alone at this point. Like, yeah, which is like, maybe the calculation for him was like, well, then I want to at least have some of the like, 
um, money and capital still if I'm going to be hounded mm-hmm. by the press. But it's like, yeah, but that's but what you don't want to have any of the like responsibility and burden of the crown like come on yeah yeah so then he goes on to say he's having this little like section where he's talking about like the monarchy and like how people in britain were upset that the family paid for his wedding a huge portion of the remaining cost was for security, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they like up and left the family. And so people are like, well, we paid for this massive wedding and then you guys left. And why did we pay for that? And so he's kind of talking about like the public opinion about that. So this is a quote. Maybe money sits at the heart of every controversy about monarchy. Britain has long had trouble making up its mind. Many support the crown, but many also feel anxious about the cost. That anxiety is increased by the fact that the cost is unknowable. Depends on who's crunching the numbers. Does the, co- does the crown cost taxpayers? Yes. Does it also pay a fortune into government coffers? Also yes. Does the crown generate tourism income that benefits all? Of course. Does it also rest upon lands obtained and secured when the system was unjust and wealth was generated by exploited workers and thuggery, annexation, and enslaved people? Can anyone deny that? According to the last study I saw, the monarchy costs the average taxpayer the price of a pint each year, in light of its many good works that seem a pretty sound investment. But no one wants to hear a prince argue for the existence of a monarchy any more than they would want to hear a prince argue against it. I leave cost-benefit analyses to others. My emotions are complicated on this subject, naturally. Uh, My bottom line position isn't. I'll forever support my queen, my commander-in-chief, my granny, even after she's gone. My problem has never been with a monarchy nor the concept of monarchy. It's been with the press and the sick relationship that's evolved between it and the palace. I love my mother country, and I love my family, and I always will. I just wish at second darkest, at the second darkest moment of my life, they'd been there for me. And I believe they'll look back one day and wish they had too. So first of all, there's a lot to unpack there, but that... <laughs> These specific lines where one, he says, uh, no one wants to hear a prince argue for the existence or argue against the existence of the monarchy. I'm like, yes, we do. I would explicitly love it if you went into what does that really mean? I should grapple with this institution that I'm a part of that has caused so much pain. Also, like, don't feed in a line about they're doing so many good works. Your good works wouldn't be necessary if you wouldn't fucked the world over. So don't give me that. Like, yeah, it's weird to go through all of that and then be like, but obviously I support the monarchy 100%. Yes. It's like, I'm sorry. So we're at page 300 in some. Okay. Like 300, uh, 386 of 415. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he has spent the vast majority of it complaining about all of these struggles, how hard it is, the challenges of being in the monarchy. And then at the end, he's like, should the monarchy exist? That's for others to decide. But also he's like, yes, it should. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wait, how can you even say that at the, at the end of this? Yeah. It, me- it renders most of what you have said leading up to that meaningless yeah completely meaningless and because it's like i can't help you if you're not willing to come out and say i don't think that this institution should exist because it's harming people both in small interactions and in big yeah and the the cost analysis benefit that you said you weren't going to do but did is like (laughs) it just 
it doesn't come out with it being worth it. No. And, and it also is like very clear that he's being a little bit cagey about Mm -hmm. does it do good? Because it's like, well, you're, you're kind of saying yes, but you don't cite specific examples necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's very vague. And you're like, well, does it cost money? Who, well, it depends on who's counting. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. Can we back up? Who is counting? Like, what are yeah. you talking about? And like, also, weren't you the one who was so boo-hoo because you were going to lose all that money? Like, don't act yes. like money isn't an an issue. Like, right. right. Yeah. Not so, great. Anyway. No nuance. Very, like, mm, childish handling of the whole conversation. Very bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bad. Okay. So bad show, that's pretty, old boy. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I do have one last snort break that I want to share. So just as like a quick thing, um, he, for some unknown reason, decides to shorten words throughout the book that he promptly never uses again. So an example is that at one point he shortens the word interpreter uh, to just terp, but then he never uses the nickname ever again so it's like you didn't need to do that you don't need to do that what are we doing what a doofus he's like yeah let's get all that good british slang in there my like my todger oh how dare you sir i would have lived happily (laughs) never hearing that very very happily (laughs) um ecstatic actually so okay that we have made it through spare um i (laughs) have a couple of (laughs) pop culture pairings um if you are interested in themes of colonialization and imperialism Mm -hmm. um i read a good book last year it's a nonfiction book called inventing latinos by Mm -hmm. laura e gomez um and it's more about like the united states uh influence on latin america and uh i thought that was really interesting there's also a good fiction book that I'm reading right now called The Seven Moons of uh, Molly Almeida by Sheehan Karina Talaka. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I tried to look it up on YouTube. It was unclear. It is by a Sri Lankan man who actually, he won the Booker Prize for this book. Mm. I think in it might have been 2022. I can't remember. Okay. Um, but it's like about a man who has died and he is in between worlds and he is trying to figure out who killed him and what happened to him wow. as he navigates this sort of afterlife, which is really interesting. Wow. Okay. And then <laughs> feel like I have to say something about the Irish uh, who were <laughs> the ones really celebrating the Queen's death on Twitter. Um <laughs> So I would recommend watching The Banshees of Anna Sharon, uh, which is just so a, good. <laughs> such a good movie. So I loved good. it so much. Yes. Uh, I think it was, was it nominated for Best Picture? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was nominated for something at the Oscars. Yeah. We, but I loved it. We deeply. saw that. It was amazing. The soundtrack, like everything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jenny. Yeah. I, I will never <laughs> be over that. That was unnecessary and heartbreaking, but... <laughs> yeah it was that was so good yes such a good movie yeah uh so those are my recommendations if you're interested in like the royal family i think there are 
I don't know, perhaps three billion yeah. books. That I you could feel read about like them. you could find something. So there's nothing really that I have to recommend. I, I did like the You're Wrong About podcast when they did about Princess Diana. I think they did like a five part series. Oh, I don't think I ever listened to that one. I thought it was it was good, yeah. and you know, again, they worked to sort of make it more mm-hmm. humanizing, um, which was interesting. Yeah, so. I was in Paris in uh, September, as you know, and I uh, walked past the tunnel where Diana died. And it's still, they still put flowers out. Like people, tourists are still putting flowers out. And I just, it makes me so sad. And I I think it's also, I don't know, maybe I'm sure that like William and uh, Harry don't feel this way, but it's, it's nice to know that so many people loved her and remember her and are still grieving her too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he he does kind of go into that. Like he goes into like how special it is to have someone as a that was a part of your is a part of your family that was so beloved. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I'm sure that must be very special to see like how many other people saw the good things in her that you did. Yeah, yeah, and that like recognize how tragic her death and so hard like parts of her life were mm-hmm. yeah yeah well that was so good what a fucking nightmare <laughs> <laughs> i am so glad that i'm done reading this book <laughs> thank you for falling on your sword <laughs> <laughs> it's like literally a sword that i pulled out so i can't even complain like i was yeah. like should i and you were like i don't care and i was like i'm doing it and you're like okay. i must i'll take one for the team <laughs> Yeah, I will be the hero here. And you're like, no one cares. I don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Oh, that was great. Um, We have no idea what we're doing next. It's going to be a surprise for everyone, including us. (laughs) But join us next time for whatever that is. (laughs) We put out a movie instead of a podcast. (laughs) We just have our dogs record the next episode. We start a band. (laughs) 